Welcome to Slayer Fest 98. I'm your host, Ian Carlos Crawford. And I'm your other host, Matthew Rodriguez. And today we are joined by... Oh, me, I'm supposed to say my name, Jarrett Weisselman. <laughs> I'll figure it out slowly. I'm a slow to start, but it'll be worth it, I swear. Um, Jarrett, thank you for being here. Um, oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, duh. Um, I feel like one of the first things we bonded over was Buffy. <laughs> yes, well, that is, that is. I mean, I don't want to invalidate our personal experience, but it is my modus operandi, specifically on Twitter, because I feel like anyone I want to talk to on Twitter loves Buffy, and so it's been a wonderful thing that's brought me and many wonderful people like yourself together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's how me and Matthew became friends as well, before we even started the podcast. See, I'm telling you, it, it, it is a beautiful show that spans generations. <laughs> Matthew, I think it, wasn't it, it was you that had like a really good like Buffy mayor election tweet, wasn't it, Matthew? And then I was like, I wish I had tweeted this and then we became friends. It was not about the mayor. It was, um, a t- it was a tweet that was from the debate and Trump had said something that was like, you'll have to get through it or something like that. And then I had tweeted like me when I, me when I tell people about the first season of Buffy right. <laughs> and like, something like that. I forget exactly what he said. You're right. That but. was something like that. Yeah. I remember being like, I wish I had tweeted this and we became friends immediately. Um, so Jarrett, tell us your Buffy origin story. Um, well, my Buffy origin story is that I am an old person <laughs> and actually happened upon the show when I was visiting my grandparents in Florida the night it premiered because oh. they too were old people <laughs> and were in bed by seven o'clock. And so I was just sitting alone in my grandparents' house in Florida, wondering what to do with my evening as I was flipping through the channels. And I think... I, I think if I remember correctly, I turned on the pilot during the scene when they're all running through the graveyard before it segues to part two. And so I was like, oh, vampires? I think like you just realized that Jesse was a vampire. And then, I mean, obviously, as anyone will attest, from that moment on, I was hooked and could not stop watching. Oh, I like that you... Amazing. So you watched it all during the original run. I, I watched it all during the original run. I wrote about this for BuzzFeed. I met my best friend in high school because of Buffy because at the time you had to record on VHS tapes. And one particular night I had to go out to dinner with my family. So I had to record Buffy and the tape didn't record, which to the millennials who are listening, <laughs> I know this is not something you have to deal with now, but when a show didn't record, on your VCR tape, that was you it, had right? to wait. You had to wait months for it to rerun over the summer, and so I ended up complaining about it the next day to someone, and they're like, "Oh, Jody watches Buffy," and it turns out that Jody, my best friend for years and years, was also a super crazy Buffy fan, and like me, recorded every episode and kept <laughs> them. So she was able to lend me the episode I missed, which unfortunately turned out to be bad eggs, but <laughs> it. But, but it worked out in a myriad of other ways. <laughs> yeah, I always say that's so weird because, like, I don't think I saw the body till it reran on FX because I had missed it when wow. it first aired, and then it just like you know you missed it and you were fucked. So right. exactly. <laughs> um, that's a really good origin story. You're one of the few people that started from like the first episode. 
you know, I mean, some call me a hero. Some call me a trailblazer. <laughs> Who's to say, guys? I'm just happy to be of service to a <laughs> fandom. <laughs> we had a we had a guest actually on this season who he was um, Brian Burns who was talking about when he came to Buffy and he was like, well, I was too young when it aired because I was like five and I was like, what? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't I, I don't I don't like how my love of certain television shows is like carbon dating, but it is what it is. Right, yeah. Um I was telling someone recently how it's really funny, my best friend from high school, her and I are like we're still pretty close. That was the wedding I, I went to recently. Um she knows a lot about Buffy just because I was so obsessed with it in high school and she still uh-huh. does, but she like never was into it. But she also loved Sex and the City, and that's literally the only reason I know about Sex and the City was because, like, we were each other's best friends, so we would, like, watch TV together. So she would sometimes be, like, sitting in my childhood bedroom with me while I watched Buffy, and I'd be, like, sitting in her room while she watched Sex and the City. But, yeah. Well, you both gave each other a gift. That's all I have to (laughs) Yeah. Also, I wanted to ask you about, because you have interviewed Buffy herself, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yes. I I think at this point, I've interviewed everyone from the show with the exception of Nicholas Brendan. But oh. obviously, Sarah is heads and tails above the rest. <laughs> it was a I'm, really good interview. It was what, like two years ago? What was... What was the context for interviewing Sarah? Because I know for certain for certain interviews, like she limits the amount of Buffy questions you can ask if it's not about Buffy. Yeah. So I mean, I the this particular interview, I over the years, I think I've interviewed Sarah two or three times. Uh, the very first time was on a press line for Ringer, so it was very very brief. And what you are saying is a hundred percent true. As soon as you know, and this was years and years ago. So as soon as you got past the pertinent questions and started down the Buffy path, there was sort of a discernible energy shift. But, and then the second time was for the crazy ones and it was similar. And then I think between the crazy ones and the last time I interviewed her most recently, about two years ago for, wait for it, foodsters, um, (laughs) I think whether it's through Twitter or through her sort of reflecting on her own career. She's really embraced what, I think she's really embraced her place and Buffy's place in the hearts and minds of the show's fans. And I think she's gotten to a much more welcoming, accepting, happy to talk about it all the time kind of position. Because I think when you are an actor, you know, who's worked their whole lives, I think the idea of being so well known for one person can in the very beginning feel extremely limiting or extremely uh, scary to be pigeonholed when you're trying to continue to be an actor. And it's not to say she's not continuing to try to be an actor now. I just right. think the the reality of our industry has sort of shown her how important it is to engage with the fans who put you where you are. And I mean, which is not to say we did it all ourselves, but, you know, Buffy fans are, in my opinion, having dealt with a lot of fandoms through my job and as a fan myself, I think the Buffy fandom is probably one of the most 
wonderfully supportive and inclusive, both internally and externally and with the actors, fandoms there is. And so I think she's very smart to come to a place where she recognizes that. And she could not have been lovelier uh, during our interview. She would talk about Buffy all day. And she did the thing that I actually always find super interesting that actors do, you know, some actors will sort of turn it on and turn it off as the recorder turns on and off or as the camera turns on and off. But she was on the entire time, whether or not the recorder was on, she was chatty. She wanted to know about me. She was super interesting and really engaged. And I could not have had a better experience with our queen. Huh. That makes me really happy, actually. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) Um, yeah, that that makes me so happy, Jared. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. I mean, listen, I will I will add the potentially experience ruining caveat of I always tell people, you know, one of the things that people tend to ask me, and I think a lot of journalists who interview actors, is who is the worst person you ever interviewed? And I always tell them if an actor is doing their job properly, they're never a bad interview, you know, because part of their job yeah. is to make me like them. So yeah, that's fair. Grain of salt. She's a very professional person who knows what she's there to do, but it felt genuine and she was lovely and blessedly, because they say never meet your heroes, but in this <laughs> case, it worked out all right. <laughs> that makes me so happy. Yeah, I had, I went to a book signing she was doing for Foodsters and I had a terrible sure. experience. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but that makes me really happy because I always also, to be fair, like, I don't know, they might be having a bad day. Like, I always try to like yeah. think about that. Um, you never know. Yeah. Um, wait, have you interviewed Charisma Carpenter? I have. I, <sighs> I interviewed Charisma years ago. Uh, luckily, uh, Veronica Mars became sort of like a second font of <laughs> Buffy alums. That's yeah. how I interviewed Allison Hannigan the first time. It was how I interviewed Charisma Carpenter. Oh. Uh, so as a Veronica Mars stan, I found ways to cover it when it was not necessary to do for the publication I was working at at the time. I mean, I love her on Veronica Mars. Veronica Mars is like my second favorite show, so yeah. Yeah, she was was pretty incredible. Um, So yeah, Charisma Carpenter, uh, James Marsters, uh, David Boreanaz. uh, uh, I'm trying to remember. I know I've talked to... Giles. I'm just trying to remember when. I honestly think it must have been for a sci-fi movie years ago when I was explicitly interviewing him just to talk to Giles, if I'm being honest. (laughs) I mean, listen, when... (laughs) I feel like, yeah, when I interned at BuzzFeed, it was like, how can I interview someone from Buffy? (laughs) A hundred percent. I mean, and I've, you know, I've become friendly through Twitter and then actually weirdly through social events with Emma Caulfield over the years, and she is like, the best. So there are, you know, there, there, I think, I think I've really found the good ones and I've maybe not encountered the bad ones. They've all been so great, which is always terrifying because, you know, it's my favorite show of all time. You yeah. don't want it to be bad. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Uh, I'm jealous, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, yes, Matthew. <laughs> no, what, no, that that's, I mean... Let let's turn let's turn now to talking about like your shot. You yeah. Know? Um, because Sarah is on in this episode. I think she does some really amazing work in this episode. I think this episode is like like Gingerbread and this are probably my my oddly my go to season three episodes. Oh, in interesting. Um, I think this one's such a good like I mean it doesn't advance the plot much, but it's such a good funny episode. 
and I feel like well, well, they're really I using think everyone. Interesting. I think you hit on it to something I want to bring up before we even go into it is that like I do feel and I mean think everyone kind of knows there's a lot of myth and lore around this episode and how it happened and how it was moved and everything because you can very much tell that like the momentum of the season kind of slows down for a second because every episode like the three episodes prior to this have all about have all been about moving the plot forward and like bringing us to this place of understanding the mayor's plan and getting more information about the mayor and stuff like that. And then the next episode as well is going to be about that. So this is kind of like, it is in the, we, we've talked about this so many times, it's very hard to have a Buffy one-off. Um, they're all really part of the larger whole, but this is more or less like a one-off in the middle of this like plot heavy back half of season three. Yeah. I, I mean, I have to say, I if we're talking about, you know, the watching it live, I have such a visceral memory of this episode because I'm fairly certain as two Buffy historians, as you both are, you know this, but this yeah. along with the graduation day was postponed and didn't air when it was originally supposed to because of real life shootings. And it right. aired during the summer. And that summer was the year I graduated. One of the reasons I've always connected with Buffy is because I'm, I was the same age as the character. So when they graduated high school, I graduated high school. And the summer after the graduation, I was on a family vacation and we did not have television on the vacation. So I had to set my DV, my VCR to record earshot. And then I left for two weeks and I just had to pray that it actually worked when we needed it to. So it was very much sort of something like you're talking about the sequence of things. It's interesting how you can almost take it out of season three and have season three pretty much continue to make sense because as you're saying, it really is a standalone in so yeah. many ways. Yeah. And like, you know, they, they mention the mayor a bunch of times, but there's not really him and faith aren't in the episode at all. Right. Yeah. No. no. Yeah. Not um, at all. Yeah, this is actually the reason... So season three is when I started watching, and this okay. is the reason I ended up not watching season four, because when this episode, this and Graduation Day were delayed, I remember being like, I don't know what the hell's going on, and you know, because it was back then, so you didn't always know why a show would be delayed or whatever. Um, and I remember because it was delayed, and because like I just never saw this and Graduation Day, I had like given up, kind of, because I didn't know what happened, I didn't know where these episodes were, and then I didn't bother with season four, and then I started a little bit halfway through season four, and then season five was when I came back and was able to watch like every episode as oh, they were wearing. Wow. Um, yeah, the, literally the delay of this episode was what caused me to like give up on Buffy prematurely. But I had only started in season three, so um, okay. Well, you weren't like yeah, you weren't cemented in there, yeah. So I yeah. I understand. Um, yeah. So I think this episode, I th I think the comic timing and the beats in this episode are just so good, like. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward plot. Like, it begins with her fighting these demons. You know, she kills the one. You see the blood go into her hand. Then we go to the credit. It's one of those shorter openings. Um, yeah, I don't know, Matthew. What do you What do you have to say about the beginning? Um, well, nothing particularly about the beginning. Um, though I do like that uh, this is one of the few episodes of the season where we're dealing with a non-vampiric foe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the beginning, the beginning is super straightforward. 
Um, and it actually, it takes a, a, a while more than I realized, I think, that to, for her, for her yeah. aspect of the demon to come in. And in the meantime, you are right. Like, there is a lot of just, like, hemming and hawing and just them kind of being like, well, we don't know what the mayor's doing or what's happening with Faith. And so there's a kind of lot of just, like, setting up and waiting for her to get that, uh, to get that aspect of the demon. And then there's the first time that we hear it. And, um, I mean, there's a, a lot of funny stuff that happens along the way with Willow maybe thinking that Buffy is going to grow a huge demon dick. Um, <laughs> Will, um, uh, Allison Hannigan's read of that line is still so good. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so good. Um, yeah, and I love when Buffy says, no mouth means no teeth, unless they have them somewhere else. Like, I, the, the whole thing, and then also the, so the meeting when they're talking about the mayor... Like, you know, is whatever they're talking about. But I love that Wesley arrives late and then they all just leave. Like, <laughs> he starts to talk and they're all like, uh-huh. And then they all leave. Like, <laughs> um, and then we get... Um, so this episode also focuses a lot, which is such a weird thing that they focus on with knowing both characters were leaving. They focus a lot on, like, Cordelia and Wesley possibly, like, hooking up or maybe they are hooking up. Um, and it's really weird that they have so much of that when that really doesn't matter. Not even on Angel does that matter. I, it, it, yeah, it almost felt more like it was something they were doing to try to advance Xander as a character versus Cordelia True. and Wesley because he spends so much time dwelling on it in this episode in particular. But, I mean, it gives, you know, it gives Nicholas Brendan some great comedy moments. But I agree. It's sort of, it is a little odd looking back. Also looking back and being like, he is a teacher and she is a child. I just feel like socially, societally, I mean, granted, Pretty Little Liars in Riverdale are still doing it. So what do <laughs> I know? But I wonder if they would still, I wonder if Joss would still make that choice today. Yeah, we, we've talked about that a few times, right, Matthew? How like revisiting it now, it's like, because even though, I don't know, those actors are clearly around the same age, it still right. is like, but he's in like a position of power and she's a teenager like, well, you know, it, well, here's the thing. He's in the position of power, but he's in a position of power within the council, and it's like a system that Cordelia has no place in. That's true. And yeah. then, I mean, you can also say, like, and also he's not a particularly, like, powerful alpha male who's, like, being predatory with Cordelia. Like, it's really hard to say it because she's, like, a 17, maybe 18, because we're already, like, at May of senior year, so maybe she's 18, let's say. Yeah. She's an 18-year-old girl, so you're not saying, like, oh, an 18... She's just being very aggressive in her pursuit of him. But I also think, and we haven't talked about this a lot, but one of the things that's really interesting, and you see it on display in this episode, is that out of all the gang... I mean, we talk a lot about fashion in this show, but um, I really feel like they age up Cordelia's wardrobe... Yeah, and the season three to make her seem like she's a little bit more mature than the rest of them. Like, I mean, obviously Willow's still wearing her flowery sweaters, and like Oz is still dressed like a disaffected youth. Um, <laughs> but like um, Cordelia, like starts coming in in like these grand damn coats <laughs> and stuff, and they're really like portraying her as very mature. And I think it's so that she doesn't look weird hitting on Wesley. It's an excellent point. That makes a lot of sense now that you say it, because she is very, like, business casual at Sunnydale <laughs> High. Like, she really does look like she's going to, like, 
the office, but like she's wearing something that's just on the cusp of being inappropriate at the office. <laughs> and that's true because when Wesley first, meet, first meets her and she talks about psychology, he asks her if she's a psychology teacher. Right. And yeah. it's almost like that kind of makes sense that he might think she's a teacher. Like, it's not like she looks old. She just looks like an adult. Right. Um, well, the first and actually the very first time I think that we hear Buffy reading someone's thoughts is when she hears Xander wondering yeah. if her and Wesley have kissed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's the very first time. Of, so, of the group. Yeah. yeah, and it's, um, you know, her getting the sense that it's really bothering Xander, and it's not... I don't think we've learned how much it bothers Xander. We know that, that the whole group likes to make fun of it, and it's for two reasons, because Xander is just making fun of Cordelia in general, and then also the large age gap, which is, like, ripe for comedy. But... Um, one of the things that we've learned about the characters is that like both Xander and Cordelia are so funny because they both use it as a, sh- as like an emotional shield or like a, and a sword kind of, and to peer into Xander's head and like see how it bothers him is really interesting. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, um, and I, I would love to hear both of you talk, respond to this too, is like, For a long time, I've always thought of, you know, these three, there are three episodes in the series that I think about as really talking to each other. And they are Hush the Body and Once More with Feeling because they all kind of play with what you can do with sound. And as I was watching this episode and thinking about it, I almost felt like this was an early sister episode to those episodes, especially Hush, because in this episode, really, Joss is dealing with like what the character's do and do not say to one another. And that's something that comes up again in Once More with Feeling. And then in the body, it more deals with like what happens when you don't have the words to deal with something heavy. Um, And you really don't think about it, but when this, this episode comes at a time in the season when all the characters are having trouble saying things that they need to say. Um, So like Xander is not expressing how much he's actually hurt by what's happening. And, um, you know, the Cordelia Wesley thing. And then Buffy, obviously the main one is Buffy and Angel not being able to talk about faith. So the writers always kind of introduce this, you know, supernatural way for uh, the characters to kind of talk to each other or not talk to each other um, about what's bothering them. And so this is actually, to me, a kind of precursor to hush, which is like, how do you communicate some, some really important stuff to someone when you don't have speech? This one is like, what happens when someone knows the things that you don't want to communicate? And then we, as viewers, get to know how people really feel. Matthew, that's, you're so smart. I love when you use that big sexy brain. Um, Thank you. That's really accurate. Um, I hadn't even thought about it. I just kept thinking of this as like a companion piece to Band Candy, because they're both like, vaguely standalone silly episodes that I really love. Um, But yeah, I feel like that's really true because it really is like Buffy looks at Xander and says, oh, you're really upset about... Also, it's weird that Buffy says you're upset about Cordelia and Wesley getting smoochies because we don't know that... Like, there's like no concept of what has actually happened and they don't actually kiss till graduation day. I think it's in part two, I'm not sure. Um, and Xander's like, yeah, you looks like you read my mind. So like clearly he hadn't actually 
talk to, which is weird that Xander wouldn't be constantly telling them that he's upset about Cordelia since he loves to talk about Cordelia. Um, but yeah, it's like the first time any of the group has mentioned him because normally it all happens in front of all of them and they're all just watching Cordelia flirt with Wesley and roll their eyes. But this is the first time Buffy like is like, oh, I can tell you're upset. And I mean, he is, and that's understand. It's not even just him being a douchey, like male. It's understandable to be like, oh, my ex is like hitting on this like older guy right in front of me, and I have to watch it every day at like almost at, like at work. Um, since, like, I, th- school. I think what you said kind of hits on like the difference, right? Is like in being a seventeen-year-old boy. You're you're allowed to within the constraints of like toxic high school masculinity. Like you're allowed to ridicule your ex and you know say that oh she's dating she's like has her googly eyes on like this old British guy, um, but you're not allowed to be upset about it in public. And like you really he feels I'm sure he feels on some level that he can't talk to Willow about it because Willow and he now have this kind of like stained past where they can't even like. Yeah, be that friendly in public with each other and you can't talk to Buffy about it. Um, so he, you know, it's interesting. This makes me think, I mean, we're going kind of, kind of down a path, but what is a podcast for except to chase wild paths? <laughs> it's interesting that Xander and Oz never became better friends. Like yeah. I, and cause I'm thinking now, like who would he be able to talk to? I feel like there should have been more scenes of like, Oh, I guess I, at this point Oz hates Xander. So that wouldn't make sense. But um I don't know. I, I, there wasn't like a male camaraderie thing between them, but I think maybe he would have gone to him. Maybe like if um, he and if Oz and Willow were back together, he could be like, "Hey, I just need someone to talk to about these things." But we kind of get how little I guess Xander has an outlet. Like his family life is terrible, and then he feel he he's keeping all this like inner turmoil about Cordelia from everyone, and he doesn't have Cordelia to talk about it with anymore. Um, so yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting, too, if you think about it. Like, if you look at Buffy in its totality, there is no real component of the show that is about male friendships. And I think that's so refreshing because oh, yeah. every every man on the show is kind of siloed either in their own world. I mean, I guess the closest you have is Riley and um, what's-his-face in the initiative. And then that's, <laughs> I mean, that's so, all you need to know is that it's Riley yeah. what's-his-face. Exactly. And it's like, I think it's so interesting that Joss and everyone else created this world, you know, that exists within the real world, which is so male driven and is so male in its essence and created this extremely sort of feminine world that is populated by men, but none of the men sort of ever really look to one another for anything, frankly. They're always looking to the women in their lives for comfort and for validation and for safety. Yeah, that's, that's really true. And I mean, you know, I do. I actually do enjoy the few Xander Oz scenes we get, like when Xander Oz and Buffy and Willow are watching uh, Cordy and everyone, the cheerleaders, perform, and he's like freaking out about Wesley. And then Willow and Buffy run off, leaving Oz and Xander together. And Xander's freaking out, and he's just like, I, I forget what he says about her, but then he like gets mad that Wesley's looking at her. And then he's like talking about being over her, and then gets mad that Wesley looks at her. And Oz just says, you're a complicated man. Like, that's all he has to say about that. Well, I think it, well, I mean, it's really interesting because Oz and Xander are kind of, like, on two opposite ends of, like, the masculinity scale. And also in a lot of personality ways. I mean, Oz is the person who speaks in, like, four-word sentences. And um, 
Xander has a, is very long-winded and really can't and words fail him a lot as they are failing me right now. So he just like kind of talks and talks and they're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum in that way. Yeah, that's, um, that's fair. Yeah. I really like the scene that we, so I know it's like a, a supposed to be funny scene, but I do like kind of the way the episode itself treats the gift and that at first Buffy is kind of like using it to know a lot about Othello and then, but eventually yeah. like it is literally driving her mad. But I do like the scene that we get of like, Buffy trying to be petty with her gift. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because, like, who can't... Like, I feel like I, I know that I would be. Um, and so it's really nice to see... Because we don't get that much of Buffy being petty. Like, sometimes we do when her and Cordelia, like, fight. But overall, normally it's Buffy being, like, rolling her eyes at people being petty. But I really... Also, the really heavy-handed Othello thing. <laughs> uh, well, it's a... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I I loved it. I think my favorite part of that whole scene is when Buffy hears Willow say, Buffy did the reading. Buffy understood the reading. <laughs> and it's just like, it's those little insights into what your friends really think of you that I think makes Earshot such a fantastic outing, you know, from a writing perspective on Jane Espenson's part, because she finds such interesting ways to convey the things that your friends definitely think about you, but they're also not the things you're worried your friends are thinking about you. That's that's a really good point. Yeah, because, like, clearly you might think that about your friend, but doesn't you're not thinking it in a bad way. You're not thinking it in, like, a shitty right. way. It's just like, oh, I wouldn't expect my friend to do this. Well, because, frankly, I mean, even to me, it would be surprising if Buffy did and or understood a class reading. So, you know, it feels hurtful but then there's probably a moment where Buffy's like yeah she's actually kind of right like you know and I but I just love the way that gets played through that whole scene I think it's really and then the whole class thinking wow at the same time when she <laughs> gives that really sort of poignant answer is just so good <laughs> I think looking back on it too that character um the girl with the red curly hair is, um, I forget her name, but she's also the one that when Buffy runs up the stairs, she's like, oh, I could have done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was such <laughs> a she's good a, She's a great one-episode character. Like, she's never seen from again, but she is so hating on Buffy in this episode, and it's actually a really cute one-off person. It, I mean, it, she's, it's an interesting thing, and I, was, I wanted to talk with you guys about this, because obviously I rewatched the episode in anticipation, and there was a moment when, uh, they're sitting in the classroom and that's when we get introduced to the Freddie, I think it's Freddie Ford, the newspaper character who's the red herring towards the end of the episode. And the way Buffy asks Willow who that is felt so strange to me. And it felt like the writers kind of just made a concession on exposition because they're like, <laughs> we've never seen this character before. We obviously need to tell the audience who it is. But it was always, it always struck me as so weird that Buffy wouldn't know a person in her school in that way. Well, I mean, Buffy is at the end of the day about like social worlds and and, and especially in this season. And I it's it's a, I'm of two minds because first of all, we just saw her earlier in the season run for homecoming queen and make a database of everyone on campus and who they're voting for. Hello. Um, and it seems like <laughs> when you're running for homecoming queen, knowing the head of the paper is like a thing that you would know. Exactly. Um, but also, like if you maybe mentally vacate homecoming out of your mind you might be able to in some world be like well Buffy doesn't really have a social life past Xander and Willow and slaying so I get it um I mean listen, this, just this seems is... like someone on he, he seems like someone who kind of stands out on that campus 
Yeah, I mean, he's extremely, like, hot topic-y, and I just think, like, he's someone I would notice. But, you know what, listen, this is us nitpicking something, because we're here to nitpick <laughs> and, and one episode of television. I mean, in the scheme of things, I've never lost too much sleep about it, but it was something that just struck me as sort of odd in the rewatch. I just, I always Look, thought it was weird that we didn't see Harmony, since they brought back, like, Larry. I thought, like, it would have made sense if Harmony was one of the girls in the classroom that they... That or like someone in the cafeteria that they had to interview. It's like weird that they don't bring back, and like Percy isn't someone they have to interview. Like he's just right. He's there, but he's maybe, not like. Maybe that was the one week Mercedes McNabb booked another gig <laughs> or something, and was just she, unavailable to the writers. She was on a Adams Family Values reunion tour, girl. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's um, right. There it is. Let's talk about the scene where Buffy tries to read Angel's mind because um, one of the things that we love to nitpick, to use your word, Jarrett, one of the things we love to nitpick on Slayer Press 98 is like the rules about vampires and how they might sometimes be consistent or inconsistent. And I <laughs> yeah. felt like Angel's explanation of like his thoughts not registering in her brain just like the mirror is an interesting way for, yeah. for a writer's perspective to say like, oh, we need to make it so that Buffy can't read Angel's mind. Like, so does that mean that he doesn't have inner thoughts because he doesn't have a soul? Or like, you know, it's, it's really weird how, how that works out. I thought it was incredibly clever. I mean, from a logic standpoint, it totally tracks for me as someone who, you know, all throughout my watching experience was always sort of aware of the rules and when they worked correctly and when they were clearly, you know, making something, they were shoehorning something in. But the, the saying, like my like myself, there's no reflection, actually really tracked for me. And it's not that I don't think that there are inner thoughts. I just think they're not perceived by other people the same way his reflection cannot be perceived by a mirror. Oh, and I just want to say that I thought the explanation really jived with me too. I was just trying to be super critical of it. But I <laughs> no, totally. Really liked it. Yeah, no, yeah. I I liked it and like, I don't know, I also, like I know we're supposed to be like, oh Buffy, what are you doing? But I, I would probably do the same fucking thing. Let's be real. <laughs> Well, it's one of those yeah. things like, you know, we've all had the conversation of like, what would happen if you magically start, became an X-Man and like had the power to like walk through walls? Like, yeah, I would go into like a store and take a fur coat. Yeah, like that's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, like my mother and I used to have conversations all the time. What if we were like, got magic wands and could be in Harry Potter? Um and, like, I feel like I would absolutely be that dickhead misusing my power, my magic, my whatever. Um, you know, I'd be season six Willow, but hopefully I wouldn't try to end the world. Um, but So, um, the next time that we see Buffy, and it's when her, like, mind-reading powers kind of start to go out of control is when she's in the library, and she can hear everyone thinking in the library, and... <laughs> It kind of freaks out Xander and Willow, and I love Cordelia. This Cordelia is the only person who says exactly what she's thinking, and Oz is thinking these like philosophical high at two a.m. thoughts. <laughs> I think this scene is like one of my favorites, but I think it might be like if you had to be like, what's one of your favorite Cordelia moments? Like, I think this would rank there among them. Like. This Absolutely. or like her end in Homecoming when she tells off Lyle Gorch and is like, mm -hmm. Buffy's a slayer, Buffy's a runner up, I'm the queen. Like, 
I think these are two of my most favorite Cordelia on Buffy, at least, moments. Um, because, like, I love that it's not like she's doing... She's not doing anything mean. She's just literally saying what she's thinking. And, like, she's bored, so she's thinking about being bored. And, like, what does this have to do with her? Because it really doesn't have anything to do with her. As, like, we have said many times on the podcast, Cordelia chooses lots of times to be part of the group and help them when she doesn't really need to be or, like, need to... She, there's, it has nothing to do with her. Like, she just is like, all right, fine. Like, I'll help. It's actually really funny when you think about it on a logistical level. Like, why is Cordelia even in the library with them <laughs> at that moment? Like, she's truly been fucked over by many people in that room. She does not like Oz, Xander, or Willow. And it's like, who called her and was like, oh, Buffy has this new party trick where she can read <laughs> minds. Come to the library. <laughs> I, I always I always secretly thought that, you know, she always put up such a big front. And I think you see it in the episode where she actually gets injured and talks about, you know, it's always me. I'm always the one. I think Cordelia genuinely likes being a part of the Scoobies because she likes helping people even against her n- her her nature you know even if it's not oh, in, yeah. you know i think then that's why i think she's such a good character because she's such a contradiction in that way and i think exactly what we're talking about now is sort of a a passive example of that where this is someone who doesn't need to be there and probably wasn't called frankly to come to the library but <laughs> did so of her own volition because that's just what she does she's now exactly. in it and she's part of this and she's here to help in whatever very limited way she can I love that reading of her, Jared. Oh my god. Well, that- that's the thing is like she's like she has every reason not to be there and she's totally. still like the queen of the social calendar at this high school, but right. she's like hanging out in the library randomly on like a Tuesday afternoon. Uh bored as shit, but like lending herself in case they need help. <laughs> right. right. Um I I love I think every this is like one of those really good season 3 scenes that's like really silly, but I think everyone's like Everyone's running, like, at their A-game in this scene. Yeah. They're all so good with, like, their little, like, interior thoughts and then, like, their reactions while they're thinking. You know, I mean, who doesn't use that gif of Buffy looking at Wesley when he's mm-hmm. thinking about... It's iconic. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, you know, I really like... I mean, we already know at this point that Wesley's, like, really insecure and kind of, like, an idiot. But, like, I, I love seeing him talk about Cordelia in his brain, and, like, I don't know, Buffy's shitty smile. I, I always think, like, I wish Giles, something embarrassing had happened to Giles, but also I feel like Giles is too smart for that. Well, they also save his embarrassing reveal for the end yeah. of the episode, which <laughs> is one of my favorite things in the history of the television yes. show. <laughs> um, also, I can say that, like, you know, I have watched, as I'm sure the both of you have, all of these episodes so many times, but this episode can still make me laugh out loud. Yeah. Um, like, all of Cordelia's moments make me laugh. You know, the next scene, I think it is the next scene, well, no, not till later, when, you, when like, Joyce is with Buffy, and Buffy's like, you had sex with, like, I still legitimately laugh out loud at these moments, which is, like, you know, part of the reason why I love the show. <laughs> well, I just love that, like, I know the writers, like, when you're on a show like this, they have to be like, well, when does Buffy find out that... Joyce and Giles have had sex. Like, there's a moment where the character has to find out. And I love that, like, this is the moment. They're like, well, she can read minds, so now, and of course... There we go. (laughs) It's a really, it's a really, I mean, 
Wesley said it, like when you're around someone, you're usually thinking the number one thing that you don't want them to know when they're right in front of your face. And so the idea that like Joyce knows that Buffy's reading her mind, she's not just like going to think about passions. She's (laughs) thinking about having sex with Giles on the hood of a car and like that she's never, that she doesn't want her to know that. Which is also an oddly vulnerable moment for Joyce that we don't really like see. Yeah. I love how they build up to it, too, because you don't actually know why she's fussing so much with blankets <laughs> and pillows and soup. And you and, the, and at first, you're just kind of like, Joyce, calm down. And then when you realize she was trying to busy her mind to dis- <laughs> distract from this one reveal and then Buffy hears it, it's just, it's played... The, the, the comedic beats in this episode are executed so well by everyone involved. I mean, they sell one amazing reveal after another <laughs> all episode long, and they never diminish in their impact because you've had ones that have come before. I mean, the Joyce reveal and the Wesley reveal and even just Xander's repeated reveals always thinking about sex. It's just, it's done so well. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I mean, even... I don't know if you guys notice this. When Buffy leaves the library, you hear Jonathan's voice thinking, no one's ever going to love me. So they like, and then, you know, he's the first person Willow interviews. They like give it to you. Yeah. And I mean, not that he ends up being the villain. He's not, but you know what I mean? Um, well, I, th- I think it's interesting to bring it up here because, you know, like this is a very, very comedic episode and it also goes to that dark place. But I think that you need the high comedy in order to get to the high drama. Like for sure. You need you need to laugh yourself through this episode to get the wherewithal to get to the point that like Buffy is stopping someone who has a pretty serious gun in the watchtower, right? And then like you learn that it's not only that it was not what people thought that, you know, Jonathan was going to off himself or attempt to do that. And, you know, it's like it, but that's the thing is like when I think back on this episode, I do I think back on both things like it's the suicide message and then it's also the like extreme laughter and it feels weird to say this like would you say to someone like earshot oh that's like one of the funniest Buffy episodes it would sound weird but it really is. I mean, and it's something the show in general does so well and I think it's one of the reasons years later we still revere it because it's so hard to do what this show does. I mean, the constant genre blending in every episode that Buffy executed and accomplished is so impressive because it's comedy, it's drama, it's supernatural, it's deeply emotional. And, you know, those are not easy things to jump between. And so I think you're right in saying that you needed the comedy to make the drama work. And I think that's probably true both of Earshot and the show in its entirety. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's. I think that's, I mean, part of the reason why the show has such, like, a cult following 20 years later, because it really just does this perfectly, and it often does. You know, there's so many episodes that succeed with doing all of that. And, you know, Matthew and I have said a lot, especially in season three, there is so much going on this season, but it never feels, like, too crowded. Right, and and also from a within the within the structure of the episode perspective, you don't only have comedy, 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 and then really heavy thing, and then it stays heavy. The show also knows to go back to to run around back to almost like farcical comedy, where you have like a lunch lady poisoning everyone with rat poison, <laughs> and then a really dark comedy too, and then. Um, 
a really terrible stunt double fighting with Buffy. <laughs> yeah. It, it's one of my biggest pet peeves in the history of Buffy, that stunt double. It's so rude. <laughs> it's the so bad. Is rude. <laughs> Like, like it's it, really it distracting, right? Yeah, it's like really, really distracting when you watch it. And like you know, of course, it's older TV, so there are lots of times when you can see the stunt double. But like this one is like maybe the worst the show's ever oh. had. I mean, I, I mean, we're Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans. We know the difference between Buffy, between <laughs> Sarah Michelle Gellar and her multiple stunt doubles, yeah. and we can clock the cuts every single time. <laughs> so we have, we forgive them a lot of double replacing. But this is next level. I mean, they have replaced a very large woman with ostensibly a thin stunt double. I'm like, give her some padding. Do something. I mean, right? it's just like, there they are did it. It's like doubles for people of size. Like you 100 percent. They just didn't even try. <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah, it's so weird. But so okay, so also sorry, the the, the woman having being her 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 body type and then her voice it just i feel like she's the woman from the pol- from poltergeist like <laughs> cuz she is like she, she just reminds me of her she has this really really squeaky high voice yeah um so also i wanted to note i love willow taking charge like i feel like we get so much more yes. of that in season 3 and this is like one of those moments where it's like setting it up so that like she is second in command kind of to Buffy in the Scoobies. Um, you know, like Giles is the dad, but like of the like kids, quote unquote, she's totally second in charge. And she's, I mean, she's more of a brain than Buffy, of course, but like not unlike Hermione, she like saves the group often. And she's the one that, I mean, they don't end up saving the, like they don't end up figuring it out till by accident at the end when Xander does. But like she prints out sheets. She says, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to the FBI site and print out like, serial killer profiles. Um, And, you know, like I said before, I think also Cordelia's really good in these scenes where she's just like, were you planning on shooting the school tomorrow? Oh, it's for the paper. (laughs) Like. (laughs) (laughs) I think think when you're talking about the Willow stuff, and I completely agree, it's sort of residual from, you know, Buffy being Anne and Willow sort of being left in charge and ha- and creating Nightwing or, you know, Xander's ulterior uh, <laughs> persona. And I, you know, and I think it's a, a very important sort of step in Willow's evolution as a character that takes her from the girl in season one to, frankly, the girl we get in seasons five and six. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is like, we are really in post doppelgang land Willow. Like there really yeah. is a turning point for her. And, um, you know, and you're right that the seed, the seed, like the, the seeds are sown in the Anne persona, the Anne, Anne uh, episode Willow. But like, I think doppelgang land really is that transformation. And so the back half is like, Willow is ready to kick ass and take names and like, step up to the plate while Buffy is, you know, away. Yeah, because, like, literally her saying, I'm going to eat this banana, lunchtime be damned, is, like, literally how she stays feeling for the rest of that season (laughs) until it builds up more, like... And, you know, and then in Choices, we get her kidnapped by Faith and standing up to Faith. Like, she really does build up an independence and, like, this, like, oh, I can actually stand up for myself kind of attitude, which I love. I mean, when... When you think about, you know, with Willow and Buffy in particular, and even Cordelia, the distance they travel emotionally and Ugh, yeah. mentally from 
over the course of season three is so important for all of them. And I really feel like, you know, they obviously all have huge seasons and huge episodes, but season three for me is the year you actually see those three women come into their own. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. I think, you know, I think Willow and Cordelia, Cordelia more so once she gets to Angel, but have like some of the best arcs in the oh. verse, you know? I mean, Willow's arc on Buffy the Vampire Slayer is my favorite character arc in the history of television that I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. You, which one did you say, Jared? Cordelia? Will, no, Willow's. From oh, start Willow. to finish, from the girl in the J.C. Penney's to <laughs> the White Witch. It's just, it's a dream. It's a dream character arc to get to go on with someone. Well, yeah, I think that, I mean, by the end of, by the, by season six and seven, that credit of, and Allison Hannigan as Willow really spells it out because absolutely, it's kind of become her show in a lot of ways because Buffy kind of, if you can, Buffy's arc is almost a downward one because she has to go deeper and deeper into what it means to be the Slayer, where Willow's is this upward arc of like, what does it actually mean to have zero power and then like get so much power that you can end the world and then kind of and then have so much power once again that you can save the world like it's it's really the one that um i think a lot of people latch on to because the show shows different sides of power you have buffy who is like destined to have it and that's never going to be us like slayers don't exist and then you have xander who is the every guy who is supposed to be the lens through which we see the show because he is powerless and then you have Willow, who's like, what happens when an ordinary person who's just trying to help out gets this gift and becomes super powerful? And I think that that is really attractive, especially to queer people who feel marginalized, like, you know, or who feel silenced, like Willow often did. And, and she's queer. So we kind of see ourselves in that, like, oh, you know, wanting to help and getting a lot of power and stuff like that. I think it's like an aspirational thing that we see in it. Totally. I completely agree with everything you just said, and I want to stitch it on a pillow. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I so also also I wanted to point out when Willow interviews Jonathan. I know we're like backtracking a little bit, but boo! I know I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> everything she says to Jonathan describes the episode, his season four episode, Superstar. Yeah, like to a T. <laughs> Also, it's, it's the second time she interviewed Jonathan because she interviewed him in Go Fish, and it's when he admitted that he peed in the pool. That's right. What's so funny is it. What's so funny is in rewatching this, I was in my mind, I was remembering the the pool peeing reveal, and when it didn't happen, I was like, "Did I make that up?" And now you <laughs> saying that makes me feel so much better because I was right. I was just thinking of the wrong episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I I also hate that Xander was right all along. <laughs> Yes, well, it's always, it's always, it happens, it's, listen, it's bound to happen sometimes. <laughs> um, and, uh, I don't know, I think, that, I, I mean, I agree with you, Jack, that ending of her talking to Giles, I mean, I think all of it's really funny, when he tells her, when she's like, well, Jonathan's starting to get the look in, my, in his eye, um, and he's like, well, you could bring him to prom, and she's like, what am I, St. Buffy? Give me a break. He's um, three feet tall! Yeah, like, it. it's so, you know, I mean, it, you know, in this episode, I was remembering it and watching it. But, I mean, Sarah has such... I mean, she's an amazing dram dramatic actor. But her comedic timing is also 
so spot on. And I think in particular with this character in these worlds, she really as a comedian was able to do some great, great work. And I think Earshot to me is kind of the best example of Sarah Michelle Gellar's comedic <laughs> abilities. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree. And, you know, I always think often in other roles, people completely negate that aspect of her acting fully. Um, but it's like really good. Like her acting is, that's why, I don't know. That's like, you know, we had a podcast all about her horror roles. That's why her role in scream works because she, yeah, she's good at being like a self-aware, I don't know. Like she's she, in, a, she's in on the joke yeah. in a way that's super important when you're working in these genres, I think. Yes. Oh, totally. Um, so do we want to talk about her speech with Jonathan? Because I do actually really like the speech. I, I mean, I will say this, and yes, I do. I will say this. Uh, the, I am, as a viewer of the show who watched it linearly when it aired, it it's upsetting that this show was taken out of order because imagine how much more powerful prom would have been uh. if Earshot had preceded it. It, yeah, I mean, that pro- I cry through most of the prom episode for the last like, oh. 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I still do. Like, it still gets me, you know, because it, you understand. But uh, but we didn't know at the time, yeah. at least I didn't know at the time, how much more profound that moment truly is. Wait, because... your, shot, your shot does precede it. No, I know, but what I'm saying is they didn't air Earshot yeah. when it was supposed to air. Oh, right, right, so we right, saw prom right. before we saw Earshot. Right. Okay. Sorry. It, it's in, in now when we watch it on like Hulu, yes. it's in the correct order. Yeah. yeah. Correct. But when and it aired, so, and I think it, yes. And it just amplifies that moment. But I think that speech is great and so true. I mean, what she says about, you know, no one cares about your pain because they're all dealing with their own pain, regardless of how popular they are. I just think that, you know, is so the message of Buffy in a lot of yes. ways too. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, we've all felt Especially, you know, I feel like on Twitter and whatever, like, you know, there's always, you know, some guy with abs and I can get mad at myself because that person has abs, but like, they can be depressed too. Like, I feel like I often try, I mean, now I'm that person, like, I, I often try to revisit Buffy speeches that I like, and this is one that I forget is so good, because it really yeah. is, it's like a really good, like, okay, well, just because she's, like, hot and athletic doesn't mean she doesn't have her own problems, because she does, and, like, we watch her problems all the time, um... So, yeah, I don't know. I just, yeah, I think it's such a good speech. And she, I I really like Buffy when she's at, like, I'm saving the world, but also I'm over it. Like, she's like, of course they don't Mm -hmm. care about your problems. They have their own. Like, I really, that's my favorite kind of Buffy on the show is the, like, I'm doing this, but also I'm going to get annoyed about it. Which is why I love Jessica Jones so much. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I think it's time for us to say how we would grade the episode, right, Ian? Yes, I think so. Wait, no. Uh, what do we think Dawn would have been doing? Or a better question to twist it to this: What do we think Buffy would have? What would have Buffy read from Dawn's mind if she Dawn had been in this episode? I oh, think she would. Go ahead. She would have been thinking dirty things about Xander. <laughs> Matthew? I think we would have gotten an early sense of, like, the Dawn we see in the real me when she's, like, writing in her diary and we're in her thoughts. And she's like, Buffy's yeah. not that cool anyway. <laughs> totally. And, like, she would be saying something like, wow, see, Buffy can't, can't even, like, do her job without getting stabbed by some demon. <laughs> <laughs> or, like, or she just would have had something snotty to say. Like, just being like, ugh, like, Buffy's getting all this attention now that she was, you know 
she's gonna getting some aspect of some demon like whatever who cares that's not cool that's yeah i think she would have been like really shitty about buffy getting extra attention like more so than she already got um but okay now yes let's grade the episode (laughs) Jarrett, what do you give the episode we grade from a to f i would probably give it an a minus to an a just i mean in in its i mean in in every way you know i in rewatching it i just remembered how impressive it was and how everyone is so great in it and um so yeah so that's what i would say uh, matthew um i like upon rewatching it i liked it more than i remembered liking it and i also want to say and i think i said this to you ian and i think we proved it here that this episode gets a bad rap because I think people only remember it as the school shooting school episode. Sh- yeah. Yeah. Right. But as we have shown, like there's actually a lot going on in this episode that is really good storytelling and really good TV. And that like the shooting aspect of it is such a small part. It's like barely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and it, it really does need to be remembered for more than that. And I hope that this podcast will help, <laughs> chip you know put a chip in the wall or whatever i don't know (laughs) i don't do metaphors anyway um i'm gonna give it an a minus okay um i think i give it a solid a because it's always been like an episode of mine to revisit i really like the emotional part and i just i mean i know we always talk about how much we love cordelia but i think she is on in this episode um as is everyone so yeah i give it a straight a so thank you for joining us jared my gosh thank you so much for having me i don't know if you could tell but i enjoy talking about the minutiae <laughs> of this show <laughs> um and thank you guys for listening if you want to follow our podcast on twitter we are at slayerfest x 98 if you want to follow matthew on twitter he is matthew Rod- at matthew rodriguez one t a g and a z and if you want to follow Ian, you can follow him at Ian X Carlos. And Jarrett, how can people follow you? They can follow me at Jarrett One R Two T's says S A Y S. All right, thanks guys, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.